If you have not heard yet, there's a new bonsai convention going down in the Midwest in 2024. It's going to be May 3rd through the 5th at the Gateway Convention Center in Collinsville, Illinois. It's put on by the Bonsai Society of Greater St. Louis. And I highly recommend you check this one out because they are doing everything right. I think that they are just doing a phenomenal job with the entire expo and convention. So to start off, they got six just incredible headliners. They have Bjorn Bjorholm of ASAN, Tyler Sherrod of Dogwood Studios, Andrew Robson of Rakuyo N, Maria Hatchtick, Young Cho, and Maro Stemberger. So super high level guest artists. I'm very, very excited that they were able to line up those people. I don't think they could have done a better job with that. That is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, they're doing $7,500 in cash prizes for the trees, the Kusumono, and the Suiseki Expo. They have $2,500 for the tree that wins best in show. We're currently calling for entries right now. So if you go to Bonsai Central, bonsai-central.com slash entries, you can enter your tree. Deadline is February 1st. 2024. So once again, bonsai-central.com slash entries. You can check that out. Uh, in addition to that, they have 14 plus workshops. They have 12 informal pop-up demos, two formal demos. They have dinner, which is going to be included with the price of admission on Friday, Saturday. They have nine plus bonsai and kusumono lectures plus Q&A sessions. They have three professional roundtables, and they have over 15 awesome vendors all confirmed. I would definitely recommend you check out the site and look at the workshop material. I am pumped. I would literally buy every single Juniper if I could for the workshop price. I think that they are not charging enough there. They have these awesome twisty junipers. I don't know where they got them or how, how they were able to obtain them, but I would buy all of them. Of course, they're saving them for the workshops. Uh, they have really great workshop material. A lot of times workshop material, I'm like, eh, it's all right. But this workshop material is looking very high level. So for more information, I would go to bonsai-central.com. You can learn all about the convention, and I am very proud to say that they are a sponsor for this episode. Thank you so much. Definitely check them out. The baby trees. Bonsai. It's almost like once you start doing it, I you almost have to. Like it, it's. Yeah. it's Windswept tree. He takes his hand and grabs his hat on top of his head while he's looking at it. Uh, how are you doing tonight? It's one of my nights that I'm on my own, so I'm a single dad. Got a nine and a half year old, and uh, his mom and I share custody. So tonight is the night that I get to kind of relax. So it worked out good. Good timing for us tonight. And I apologize; it took so long. You asked me about this back in the winter that's my really busy season with shipping out seedlings and stuff and lots of pots so now the summer it's slower so it's good timing hey absolutely no 
apology necessary, and uh, I am just absolutely honored to have you on. Uh, you are the man when it comes to bonsai containers, and I've I've followed you for a long time, and so I'm I'm super excited to have you on, and uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I'm I'm hoping to pick your brain about a few different topics yeah. tonight, and I'm I'm really excited about this. It's my pleasure. Awesome, man. Yeah, I am also single right now. Well, not single. I'm still married, but uh, okay, good, good, <laughs> my, good. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my wife went out of state with our two little ones, which I think is absolutely insane uh-huh. because I have a five year old and a four year old. And I, I don't think I could do it. Uh, I don't know how, how she did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot traveling with little kids. We traveled a lot uh, when he was younger and, you know, um, she still travels a lot with him and I travel a lot with him. So we were just in Florida. So traveling with kids is, is, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, you have a, a, a beautiful son and I love seeing all the posts that you put up with him. Uh, how, uh, Thanks. So does he know, <laughs> could he pick out a, a Nakawatari pot out on a lineup, you think? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. We're not quite there yet. You know, he, I, yeah, I just posted something on my Instagram about how he was hanging out with me today. Uh, he doesn't have camp this week. Uh, school starts in a few weeks. So um, he was with me. Sometimes he likes to do things, you know, sometimes he likes to, to like water and he likes to help and, and do stuff like that. And then other times, you know, he's getting to that age where, they really love uh, the iPad. So, you know, I have a lot of work to do every day. So it's good that he hangs out with me and he's close to me. But uh, sometimes, like, it's, like, mutually beneficial that he's, you know, got something to watch and I've got some work to do. But we're, like, 10 feet apart. So it's it's still, like, it's, it's, it's very neat to, to, to live and work on my own property. I have five acres here, so the nursery's on about three three and a half and then our house is on about an acre and a half oh that's that's a uh, nice amount of room for you to grow lots of trees and have lots yeah. of bonsai pots <laughs> yeah 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 very cool well tell me tell me a little bit about yourself uh before the bonsai pots i think you mentioned that you you used to be a teacher yeah so well, I started in Bonsai Young. I was probably about 14, and I'm 42 now. And then um, I sold trees. Probably I started doing that when I was about 17 or 18. I started my tree sealing business. And then um, from there, uh, kind of what happened was is that uh, it, it did really well. I ran it out of my parents' backyard. But I was I was too nervous to kind of start my own business. And... Um, like full time. And so I kind of thought, what kind of career could I have that I could balance like a tree business and also, you know, have something that, you know, supplied um, like a salary and also benefits. And so the last thing I thought I would be would be a high school teacher. And I was a high school teacher for 10 years, uh, just outside of Chicago. That's where I spent most of my life. And I ended up is a wonderful uh, career. It was a great job, great career. And it was very tough to leave. Um, but I also knew that I didn't want to, um, you know, I didn't want to do that for like 35 years, you know? So, um, it kind of morphed into us moving, um, to Maryland nine years ago and then starting, you know, doing this full time. 
And it didn't, you know, I didn't plan for any of that to happen. It just kind of happened. Um, but initially it was my, my focus was, was, um, growing tree seedlings and selling them and also selling some trees too. And so then, um, at about 21 or 21 or 22, I spent three months in Tokyo at Shunga and Mr. Kobayashi's place. Um, it was, these were the days where like Peter Warren was the head apprentice, I think Ryan Neal was apprenticing, Michael Hagerdorn was apprenticing, you know, at respectively at um, Kimura's and Mr. Suzuki's. And so I was there for a whole summer and um, I, I really liked collecting things like American pots and stuff. Um, and then when I went there, when I was at Mr. Kobayashi's, we were just handling so many, he used to be a, like the biggest ceramics dealer. I mean, huge, you know, the best stuff, anti-Chinese and really good Japanese stuff. And so while I was there, we'd have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. And we'd always be passing around some sort of, he would always have us pass around some sort of really high end expensive pot that he got. And so it kind of naturally happened where I started to like the Asian containers a whole lot more. So then I went home and I sold a lot of my American stuff and started buying um, Japanese. And I realized that I wanted to buy older pots that had patina on them. And I started discovering this world of kind of like famous makers, which there's a bunch of in Japan. And then just like anybody else, when you kind of have bonsai was my thing, but then, you know, pot collecting was my hobby everybody gets too much. And so then I kind of thought the two businesses could kind of work with each other. It was in the same category, even though people who buy seedlings generally don't buy really expensive pots. And so that's kind of how it morphed into happening. I had some inventory and then I started to create a store for the pots and then it grew and grew and grew. And in my last year teaching, uh, I took leave when uh, we had our son. And I found out that when I could focus a lot of time on my business, so I would take care of our son during the day, she would get home from work and do the nighttime, I would really focus on my pottery side of my business. And I noticed that we would do well, that there was a need, there was, there was people that wanted to buy these things. And so that's kind of how it all happened. Uh, totally unplanned and you know, here we are today, I keep about 3,000 pots in hand at all time from usable, pretty inexpensive pots to, um, you know, really high-end collectible pieces. Very cool. Very interesting. My mom and sister are both teachers, so I have a massive amount of respect for our teachers, and I feel like they just aren't paid enough, just to be very frank. I think they do a very, very important job, but at the same time, I think you got to follow your passion. And so I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you were able to do that and create a very successful business out of everything. It's funny. I yeah. never really thought about seedlings and high-end pots being kind of like at different ends of the spectrum. However, right. they, they are <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's cool that you've been able to mesh them together and you have some diversification within your business. Uh, that, is, that is really cool. So yeah, it's worked out. That's fantastic. So, uh, yeah. so bonsai education, uh, and I know like besides from all the, the bonsai pots and containers and learning all about that. Uh, so you were an apprentice at, for three months at Mr. Kobayashi's. 
Well, that's a good question. So the one thing is, is I'll never call the time that I spent there any sort of apprenticeship. I was simply a guy that was interested in going to Japan. I, you know, had signed a contract to be a teacher. At at the, at that time, it was you had to be a full apprentice. You had to give up your life, you know. And it was like five or six years most times. And I knew that wasn't something that I was going to do. I just finished my undergrad and you know, sign this contract. And so then I had asked like the first time it was kind of like, nah. And then the second time I was like, you know, can you something I really want to do? So what I always say is it wasn't an apprenticeship. It was living the life of an apprentice for a short time for just three months, which is really just a snippet in the time that, you know, all of the people we have here in America and we've seen in different parts of the world have finished full apprentices inside of Japan. So, um, so yeah, it was a summer study, and I lived and worked there and lived that life for that time. And, um, you know, it was brutal. It was hot. It was really hot. And so, you know, it was hard work and long days. But it was, it was very, very good, you know, looking back on it. And I've created a great relationship with Mr. Kobayashi, and I've known Peter for 20 years. And so every time I go back to Japan, it's like kind of welcomes me with open arms it's 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 nice you know yeah yeah what a what an awesome experience and i appreciate the distinction there are are you know the the f- people that do 5 plus years that's very impressive and a, a lot of hard work and uh but it, it's cool that you were able to do that visiting apprenticeship there and mr kobayashi's nursery is so beautiful and so inspiring i just Absolutely love that place. Yeah. Have you been to Japan? Have you traveled over? You know, I, so my only trip to Japan was in 2015. It was for about two and a half weeks. And the entire time I spent somewhat similarly to you at Aichien. And so, yeah, it was around the time when uh, Juan Andrade and Danny Coffey were there Mm -hmm. and John Milton. And uh, I just worked on bonsai the whole time. So it was very much a visiting apprenticeship. Yeah. 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 It's fantastic. It's great for, for people to do that. They can't do a, go the traditional route. Um, I like IGN a lot. I like Mr. Tanaka and um, I just saw him last February. I spent a month in Japan and went down and saw Seth, Seth Nelson's, uh, current apprentice down there i think he's finishing in the next year or something like that i think um yeah but he's a really good kid and and you know yeah looking forward to him finishing up and you know bringing things back to america i mean every it seems like every year every other year we get more people who finished apprenticeships and i think that's fantastic yeah 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 actually it's funny you mentioned that i literally did a podcast with seth last night (laughs) oh good yeah good that's fantastic. Yeah. Seth, and, Seth and I are, are, are friends besides just, you know, me going down there and visiting. Like, Seth's, I've known Seth from, I met him when I did a convention down in Florida years and years and years ago. And so, you know, he was a really enthusiastic kid in Bonsai. And, and I, you know, related to that because I started young and joined a club at 14. You know, and so it's, it's nice to find someone who, who who's kind of was in the same same kind of situation you know totally totally uh-huh. yeah seth great great dude shout out to seth awesome guy yeah nice so in terms of like 
your bonsai education, because I'm impressed with everything that I've seen from you. Did you like how else have you studied bonsai? Um, I mean, you know, before going to Japan, you know, I would I would you know like take classes and stuff, and you know, like when you're part of a club. I mean, that was really useful time. I, mean, I got a lot of misinformation then too. You know, this is going back over 20 years ago, so certainly like education has changed for that. But you know, I'm I love to learn things and I like I love to observe things, and so. I really focus, like, if you've seen my, like, my maple garden, you know, it's predominantly trident maples. I love trident maples. I've loved them since I was a teenager, and I love them now, you know. Um, my my real focus, my number one, where my heart goes to when it comes to bonsai is, is trees, and, and specifically trident maples. Over pots, you know. I love pots, but I love, I love tridents. And so it was always working on them intensely, and... Um, observing what happens when you cut here when you clip there and you know i go to japan and ask growers and different people advice and then compare it to what i do and and you know and then we're always evolving here so i have have employees and stuff and i have bonsai people that come on the weekends and so you know it's good to learn a lot but it's good to always kind of evolve and, and change the way that you you grow and look at things too absolutely yeah, I, I love your work on Trident Maples, uh, and I'm always impressed. I'm very, very impressed. I've seen somewhat more recently, you posted a bunch of root over rock tridents, which I was like, wow, he grew those? That's very, very impressive. And then you oh, have so oh, ma- Yeah, the ones that we dug, yeah, from that yeah, raised yeah, bed. Yeah. Oh, they, they, uh, yeah. so they look did, great. Yeah, we did those in like... Um, you know, obviously, I, I grow about 250,000 trees a year from seeds, so I have... I don't have to pay for seedlings, which is nice. So when my when my weekend guys come, we um, there's one guy specifically who's been coming here since I moved here um, for about nine years, and uh, he's he's a good friend and he's he's good at bonsai. And he him him and I do a lot of the wrapping, and he's like a, he's an accountant by nature. I mean by career, and so he by nature he's like very meticulous. So, you know, I try to teach the guys when they come here, like to think about when you're wrapping a seedling around a rock and it's only a couple centimeters or a centimeter, you know, it's very, very, very thin. Like you have to kind of look at that rock and envision that 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 will end up being 10 times thicker. And so kind of seeing if you can think like that, like when you put things around and he does a very, very good job of very meticulously placing seedlings so that we can kind of come away with a good product. And I was amazed. This was the first year that we dug them and the stuff that came out of the ground was amazing. I think we have another 50 or so in the ground of all sizes. And I'm going to put another 50 in the ground for, I'm going to keep it going, you know? Yeah. As you very well should. <laughs> if you would have told me those yeah. were imported from Japan, I totally would have believed you. They look really good. Yeah, most of those we just did in three years from seed. So it was one-year-old seedlings, two years over the rock inside of a raised bed, and then we dug them out. And so now they're in their 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 fourth their fourth year. So usually the first year that you put them you put them in a raised bed. We wrap the wire around them and do the, all the stuff, place them right. 
the first year they grow just like a little bit and it's that second year that they really 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 take off i mean they grow like eight to ten feet in a single year so that's how you really get them to thicken up and that's also when they fuse so when they start to fuse you always have to have a fusing point which will you know most times be at the top or at, or at one distinct side if you wrap like 10 seedlings or 12 seedlings around a stone when they start to fuse, they then absorb all of the root strength from all the other 10 or 12 seedlings. And so then it kind of goes into overdrive when it comes to growth. So that's how we knocked them out in such a short time. Ah, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. I, I was thinking that they were like, it was one specific cutting or, or seedling. Uh, but so they're fused uh, so, root over rocks. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's actually the, the, the way that, They've done it, they in, do Japan it in Japan for like a hundred years. I mean, almost every root of a rock will will show some like very faint lines on the roots. What would be the roots? Uh-huh. And that's from just um, you know they you just wrap wire around it, and then the compression of the wire holds it in place. And then as it grows longer, you cut all the wire off. So there's a little bits of wire that stay embedded inside of that. Uh, years ago when I used to travel, I don't travel anymore. I, I traveled to clubs all over in my twenties. I stopped when I was 30. It's so, it's a great thing to do. And I'm glad we have plenty of people to do it because it's so tough. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you're away from home and traveling, which isn't always the greatest thing to do. And you're traveling for business. And, but I did this talk once about root over rocks and how we have like, we have natural stones and we have manufactured stones or manipulated stones. So a lot of the stones that we see in Japan are like acid washed. They came from a river, but they acid washed them. And, and then we have so many times that there's roots wrapped or seedlings wrapped around them. But then there's also times where someone actually uh, takes the roots, spreads them out, puts them over a stone. So there's, like multiple different ways that people can go about it. And so it's, there's a neat distinction between a true root of a rock and one that simulates one, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. I, one thing I think about, it seems like there's so many trident maple root over rocks, but you don't see a whole lot of other types of trees. I mean, you do, but I, I, one question I always had is just like, what are all the different trees that actually can make a, a good root over rock? Or, or, and then also, what are all the deciduous trees where they actually fuse together? Yeah. Like, could you do an ume over rock? I, I kind of think that might work okay, but like, because they don't really fuse well, it may look kind of funky. It, it just doesn't look as, as clean and smooth as a trident would with those fused roots. Yeah, I can't say I've ever I can't say I've ever seen one. This year we did some different stuff though too. We did uh Japanese maples over rock. I mean, that's something you do see but not as often. Obviously, as trident trident's number 1. So we did some Japanese maples here. Japanese maples grow really well here in Maryland. Um and I'm I'm only 35 minutes outside of Washington DC on the Maryland side by the Chesapeake Bay. So we have a little microclimate here. It's very very mild. Um, it's one reason why I chose to move here. We also did Chinese elm. So I want to see how those work. So we got maybe five or six in the ground now. So, you know, I'll report back to you uh, <laughs> someday about how those grow. 
I've seen I've seen very very good root over rock Japanese black pine in in private collections here and also in Japan. There's a phenomenal root over rock shimpaku, which is amazing. Uh, it was in nationals. Let's see, I took it up there. I took it up there for a very famous collection collector, and I had it at my house for a while. And it's it's like one of my most favorite trees in the United States. So if you look back at maybe a couple nationals ago, you'll see a, 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 a root over rock um, shimpaku that was cutting, like someone planted it as a cutting, you know, over a rock, probably 80 to 100 years ago, maybe 100, you know, it's wild. Uh, that's awesome. Is that, was that in the 2018 show or the 2021? Wait. It would be Let's the see, teens was it the last? Sure. Okay, no. cool. It was before COVID. Now we talk about life pre-COVID and post-COVID. <laughs> you know, it was it was it was before COVID. It was before COVID, um, and I was taking trees up for a private collector just for a display. You know, he he had his um, Bill had asked for you know his some of his trees to be on display every year. So that one, and it was it's a huge tree. I mean, it was like a four man tree. It was like, you know almost yeah. four feet tall, and it weighed like hundred hundred pounds to move it around. It was. It was wow. very nerve-wracking to have it here, even though I'm fine with – it's just a priceless tree, you know? I mean, yeah. uh, how much you could get that here, how much it's worth even in Japan, how much it's worth in Europe. I mean, it's worth a ton of money, you know? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I feel like the pressure of watching after someone else's tree, personally, like I, I take that – not more seriously, but I just would feel extra bad if something happened to it compared to if it was my own, I'd just be more relaxed, even if the value was the same. I don't know if you feel that way. That's how I feel. I do. And I've taken care of, I grew up in bonsai, so I get to make a lot of friends and meet a lot of people. I have taken care of people's trees in my yard from Chicago to here. I mean, for... 15 or 20 years <laughs> and i hate yeah. it yeah. <laughs> i hate it it's, it's what a lot of what a lot of people who visit japan don't realize too is that a lot of the trees with the exception of ichien ichien is is different because you studied there so it's different than a lot of other nurseries but most most places that you're going to go the, the the master of the garden does not own those trees there he'll own some but the vast majority of them are customer-owned trees. And there's kind of like a little union scale uh, for how much you can charge somebody per month. It's posted like in every nursery. So there's this the tree, tree boarding fee. Yeah, yeah. So it's a huge source of revenue uh, in Japan. Um, I suppose, you know, I know some people kind of, kind of do that here. But it, it's something I'm not in. I mean, I have people's trees here right now. And I don't. I never like it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally understand that. And yeah, I know like I, I study with Peter T now and he has Ooh. that as a regular part of his business, tree sitting or tree boarding. I've got a yeah. couple up there. One is a, a ponderosa pine that I'm grafting over with black pine. It's just because it does cool. better in his climate until it yeah. has black pine and then it will do really well where I live. Uh, and then the other is a trident that I'm, kind of restarting that he sold me um but okay. it's not as nice as your your trident you have a trident that just blows my mind and i would love to see it in person someday 
Uh, it's Which it's a massive, massive tree. I mean, you have a lot of them, but I think you know the one uh, I'm talking about. The big, massive, big, big, massive, big, 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 big. huge <laughs> one. Yeah. Yes. So that was in the that was in the that was bought in a pair. So I we I got saw both. the other one. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah, Bjorn posted a video recently, and it had the yeah. Yeah. collection with the other one. Yeah. Yeah, so, Mr. Yeah. McLean. So he's I've known Jim for a really long time and Jim's a really good friend of mine and uh customer and stuff and so um yeah, th- those came in a pair. So mine which kind of has more movement and his is uh actually a little bit larger, but it's kind of more more formal. So those trees uh, originally were bought from Mr. Morimai and uh we bought those a long time ago and then had them imported. You know, uh, I think at that time they came through Brussels. And so they sat there for two years. So those are monster trees and they take a ton of effort <laughs> to move them around. Uh, the crew that helps me with that stuff, they always hate it when it's that time of year. It's only twice a year that we move those trees when we move that tree. <laughs> and it's four people. And mine's in a harumatsu pot, it's a good tokenami pot, you know, and. Uh, it, it's like over four feet the length of the of the pot. So I always tell the guys, I'm like, look, not only is this pot very expensive just because of its sheer size. When you get when you get that large of a pot, any potter in the world will tell you the the uh, breakage in firing and having a big enough kiln and problems that happen just go exponentially up. That's why you see a lot more small pots and medium sized pots. And so I always tell the guys, not just is this a very expensive pot, but it's also nearly impossible to replace. So, Oof. you know, I would have to spend, you know, five or $7,000 just to find that pot. And then I would have to have it, it couldn't be shipped here uh, yeah. regularly. So I'd have to have it shipped over in a container, which I get oh. containers, uh, I have a shared container once a year. So I'm like, you know, we got one shot at this, you know, and it's always on the coldest, rainiest day. There's kind of like a hill, which can get a little bit slippery if it's rainy. So, yeah, I, for some reason, I, I don't like treacherous work, but, you know, I, I seem to kind of attract it sometimes. Got Oh, man. Is there a risk in putting a pot in a container? Like, is there much chance that it will break when it comes over? Yeah, sure. I can, we can talk about pot break because we just got a shipment in today and one of my employees the the monday through so i have monday through friday employees people who are non-bonsai people who are paid a salary here so they know nothing about bonsai other than what they've just picked up here they weren't hired as that at all and you know one of them was helping me open up some boxes that came in today and I had a nice gyozan pot that was broken in there and it was only like 13 or 14 inches you know a wide wasn't a big pot at all but, um, you know, the UPS picked up my contract and cause I got a lot of stuff shipped in and yeah, they, they, <laughs> you wouldn't believe like how things show up. And, Ugh. and so while the vast majority of things are fine, there's just, there's times where there's really big hiccups and even in a container, a container should be really, really safe. The last container we got in, I, I had a bunch of big pots in there and. Yeah, I mean, some come in broken, you know, uh, maybe 5% or something. But it, it hurts when it's kind of like good pots and specific pots, you know. If it's a like a pretty inexpensive pot, you're kind of like, eh, that's too bad the pot broke, you know. When it, when it's a really good one, you're like, oh, man, you know. This, yeah. 
this is a bummer. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to think that that is pretty common, unfortunately. I mean, just pots breaking when they come over here. And I am really surprised by your prices. A lot of the times I feel like they are very, very reasonable. And I'm like, especially when you factor things like that into what you're what you're bank, paying for i i feel like uh yeah. yeah i don't know i'm just i'm surprised by the the prices that you have sometimes i think i think you just have great pots and really good prices yeah you know thanks i've always had this mentality of like you know treat people fairly uh keep your margins low and uh i've been able to meet a lot of really successful and cool people in the bonsai world and and some of those people they become friends and people that I really look up to for what they do outside of their hobby, you know? And I just remember one friend of mine just told me, he goes, you know, this is very early on. He goes, just never be a pick, never be a pick because people will find out. Always, always make a fair markup, make sure you're making a living, but don't be a pig about stuff. And so that's kind of like, <laughs> kind of strange terminology, but that's kind of the business model that I took. You know, you always just treat people fairly and kindly and, and, and and get them their pot safe. We have very very little pot breakage with shipping, and we ship uh, this time of year maybe twenty or thirty boxes a day. Uh, maybe twenty. It's been it, August is pretty slow. Last month is pretty slow. July is slow. Um, but during the busy season from fall until spring, we, we're like fifty plus packages a day between pots and seedling orders. Whew. <laughs> yeah so we just crank them out get them in turn them out get them in turn them out i don't need to make a high margin i just I like, I like to move i like to move inventory i like to come in here and you know you could come and visit me and you know, like i said there's three thousand pots here and you go like wow look at all these pots and i'd say come back in a couple months most of it's gone and then there's new yeah. pots here of course some pots stick around for a while but some some pots move very quickly for sure mm-hmm. well i i definitely respect the hell out of that business philosophy that you have about don't be a pig. I think that's just a really good business philosophy in general. And uh, I've bought a bunch of pots from you over the years, not like a ton of them because I mean, if I had the budget, I definitely would, but I've never had an issue, never had an issue getting any of your pots. And I've bought a bunch of seedlings from you as well. Your pots always come very well packed. Uh, You put a a whole heck of a lot of uh, peanuts in there. And sometimes they yeah. get all over the place, but <laughs> I'm happy to get them packed and or, and have them arrive safely. So <laughs> yeah, we try to get things from point A to point B safely, and you know, very rarely is there ever an issue. And when there is, we always take care of the customer. You know, I spend a lot of money on packing materials, so I I get all my stuff from like a, a big shipping company. It's huge on the East Coast here, so I get about a once a month. I'll get like thirty six foot bags of packing peanuts they come in a semi-trailer and then i'll order boxes and tape and so a lot of people don't realize when they purchase things how much packing material costs double wall really good boxes really good tape really good labels packing peanuts it adds up you know i spend four to four to six thousand dollars a month on packing material jeez that's a whole lot yeah yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, so that's kind of, you know, where I'm at right now. It's been nine years of doing this full time, and I'm going to keep doing it as long as as long as long I can do it. 
I, I think that the it's much harder to find like the finer pots, the really expensive kind of, you know, some of them even like museum quality pieces or even stuff from very, very good potters. But, the, you know, there's there's a lot of tokenami pots out there that are good, usable. Um, the majority of sales obviously are for people who are buying a pot to use. So they want a, a, a good pot that's got 20, 30 or 50 more years of age on it. And then, you know, they they realize that their tree kind of matches that nicely. It's been one of the thrills of my job is to help people get a pot that matches their tree. Because, you know, this is, Bones is about having a good time. And, and you know, I want people to have a good time. And so, you know, one of the things is you got to match up a tree with a pot. And when people are happy, then I'm really happy. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Where Where's the best or what is the best way for people to find your pots? Well, I have an eBay store. I chose an eBay store because it's the best place for me to have tons of pictures and descriptions and for it to be safe and covered for everybody. Um, I've had an eBay store for over 20 years, but I continue to do it, even though eBay isn't quite as popular as something like Amazon, you know, but uh, I can send you like the link to my eBay store because it's kind of long to spell all out for you. Um, cool. Sounds good. I'll, I'll put a, a link in the show notes for, yeah. for everybody. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I also have my website for seedlings too. So I'll send you that as well. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. Question for you. I hear people call bonsai pots several different things. I hear pot, container, ceramic body, vessel. What do you usually refer to them as? Does that, do you care what people call them? Do you call them no. something in particular? <laughs> no, I just call them pots, you know, and cool. uh, a friend of mine who has like this huge, huge collection of pots, he, it's, we have a joke because I call it the, I call it the pots room and he calls it the pot room. We kind of go back and forth grammatically about which one's correct. Uh, and as a former educator, I'm sad to say I don't know which which is correct uh, grammatically, but uh, people can call it whatever they want. I mean, you know, have have, have a good time. I mean, so Bonsai's about is, is people having a good time and enjoying themselves. So it's a, it's like the journey that you're on, you know, to yeah. find a tree and then get a tree where you want that tree to be. And then to find a pot that matches that really well. And and when people when that happens, people really really love it. I mean when when it happens here for myself, even after doing this for twenty five years and having my own garden, I I love it when something matches up really nicely. I'm like, ah, oh, this is beautiful, you know? Yeah. Oh, most yeah. definitely. Most definitely. Great. Well, yeah, I like that you are down to call it whatever. I feel like uh yeah. I usually just say pot and, but I, but I like, you know, any, anything you want to call it is cool. I, I feel like in that regard, we can't take ourselves too seriously. We're just playing with little trees. We're not out, you know, fighting wars or trying to cure cancer or anything super serious like that. We should have fun with bonsai. And so mm-hmm. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, I think people can get a little, you know, interesting about terminology and stuff like that. And, what they want to call things. And I think we see more of that now today because there's more people who want to do this full time. I think there's a lot of people who want to do this full time and that's fantastic. But, uh, it's, it's a tough business. It's a hard, 
I mean, you got to work really, really, really hard. And um, I try, I want to know, I, I, I try to think about how many people actually, you know, do bones that are something related to it full time in America. You know, it's not very many. It's not. Yeah, no, it really is not. I, uh, so one of my other hobbies is uh, jujitsu, right? Oh, I love, I, I love jujitsu. I love MMA. I'm getting my son into it soon. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Me too. I, I mean, I, I would never participate in MMA personally. I mean, other than I, I love to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I don't want to take any uh, shots to the head, though. <laughs> no, um, I don't need it. I don't need any more. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but man, there is a jiu-jitsu. There's like every single city. There's like multiple jiu-jitsu gyms. There's competitions all the time. And it's fu- it, like it's another hobby that came from another country uh became popular in the US but it's i mean bonsai is nowhere as big as jujitsu is now but i think that it has the potential to be very very big and i think that we are growing but it is it's very small relative to a lot of other hub- hobbies within the US i think yeah yeah but it's it's growing so much bonsai's growing so much and you know there's more people making a living at it today than ever and that's fantastic. I think, I think COVID really helped it grow a lot. And I think it was already on an upward t- trend. We're on an upward trend. And so that's that's both good and bad because there's there's people who are, you know, very good and very legitimate in their business practices and what they do, you know. And then there's there's people out there who, who see dollar signs. Um, and there's, you know, there's some hucksters out there, you know. and uh, For sure. It's it's hard to, you know, a person like myself. I don't get involved in that. You know, I don't I don't see much of it. I I, I hear about it trickling from like the guys that come here on the weekends. Um, I don't. You know, it's just it's it's a tough situation because it seems like it's happening more and more. There's people who rip people off completely, or they. Um, send them like a tree that's in, in bad health, you know, and like, or something they just flipped just to yeah. make a few, just to make a few bucks, you know? Gotcha. Are in particular, are you talking about maybe like the rise of Facebook auction type things? Yeah, I'm not really, I've heard about stuff on there. I, I used to be really involved in that in the early days. Um, there was like one auction site, and then I wasn't on Facebook for a very long time because I was a school teacher, and that's never advisable to be a high school teacher and to be on Facebook. Um, so you know, when I when I left, then then yeah, I started a Facebook account, and there was there was like the original, which was started by one guy, I forget who it was, and then there was like a spinoff of that, and then they asked me to start selling pots on there, and so I started selling pots on there. And then there was like another spinoff, you know, there was like these, these administrators just <laughs> they get like you know, little power factions, right? Mm-hmm. And then there was like another one. So I, I just, I'm not involved in any of them. I think, I, I think I'm like, a, I don't know what it's called, an administrator, board member, something. I don't, I don't go to any meetings. I don't do any, I don't do anything, you know, I, I don't know, <laughs> but yeah. I, I don't post, I don't post anything. I mean, I just. I run my own business off of, you know, Facebook and Instagram and eBay and my website. So for sure, I don't, you know, people who are buying pots are going to buy pots. You know, they're going to find a, a pot. And, and most of the time that lands with me. Um, for a long time, I was the only person 
that sold. Uh, there was there was a couple of couple of guys that had nice pot collections very early on. Um, you know, both of them friends of mine, and they had very nice pottery collections. Um, really good pots long before the time when they were popular here in America. Um, and they would sell pots from time to time, but no one really had taken a risk to start importing them in bulk. And I started doing that like about, yeah, a little bit less than 20 years ago, close to 20. Yeah. Less than 20. And so it was, it, to be honest, for a while, it was great to be the only guy, you know, it was great to be the only person. I mean, sure, you could go and buy like a really cheap, you know, slip cast Chinese made pot from mm -hmm. the big bones. I outlet guys. I mean, I say 3000 pots, they might have 30,000 pots, but they're, you know, all the same. same. Yeah. Um, to, to get something that was, you know, named and unique because, you know, even a Yamaki pot, which Yamaki killed and closed down in 2010, they made so many pots, so many usable pots. Um, you know, you can have one that's the same size and the same shape, but because they're a lot of them are a lot older than 2010, you know, a lot of them you can get they're 30, 40, 50 years old or more. They're different because they've had decades of use on them and, yep. and the, the patina and how it aged and how the clay accepted that patina can be very different. So for a long time, it was just me for a very long time. And, uh, you know, now there's more people. There's a couple people that sell the same stuff I do that, you know, kind of copy and paste what I write on eBay <laughs> and kind of put it and sell it. And that's fine. But yeah, it's, it's not very many. And yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the nice thing about that was initially I was kind of like, hey, you know, what are you what are you doing? Like, you know, be original, like find something original to do, especially when it even came to my own wordage, my own pricing structure and my own background and where where I set my pot on top of some, you know, like a little mm. wooden box to get pictured. You know, they would do that. So that thumbnail, someone would click on it thinking it was me. And that's happened hundreds of times over the years. People say, oh, hey, what was this? You know, they'll send me a picture. They'll say, uh, can you tell me who made this pot again? I forgot. And I said, no, I didn't sell you that pot. You know, that's not mine. And they're like, oh, yeah. oh, okay, okay. And, and and initially, I was I was kind of like I didn't like it, you know. But what happened is over time is that it just it helped me become even better at my business. It helped me travel farther in Japan. It helped me look harder, look deeper, and it encouraged me to to even step it up even more. And so it's what I, it's what I do. Yeah. Well, I got to think that you have sold the most high quality containers in, out of anybody in the United States. Do you yeah. think anyone uh, comes close? I, I probably would say no. No. <laughs> no. I mean, and I, yeah. I, I'm, you know, you've gotten to chat with me a little bit. Like I'm not arrogant about things at all, but I mean, it's, it, it's not even close because the stuff, there's also so many sales that happen behind closed doors to really high-end collectors, you know? I mean, some really expensive stuff, you know? I think probably in my, that time, I mean, it's it's well over $10 million in ceramic sales in 20 years. Well, well over $10 million. Wow. 
So I don't think anyone's gotten close to that. You know, um, I would be really surprised if, if yeah. they did. And I just, I don't, I don't see, I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, you know, the, <laughs> out of a, a lot of my bonsai friends and, and people that I talk to, whenever we talk about bonsai pots and I really don't know much about them, I have like a very, very base level knowledge about bonsai pots in general. Everyone says the guy to talk to, the guy to ask that question, that's Matt Winga. <laughs> Ask him. He's got he's got the knowledge. I know uh, Michael Ryan Bell uh, had yeah. had a really good blog there. I think you guys are fa- friends. Would oh say. yeah, um, yeah. I, I had to make sure that over the course of the time we're talking, I have to mention Ryan. And Ryan and I met each other, you know, very early on, um, and we, we're friends to this day. And Ryan is a genius. Ryan knows way more than I do about does he really okay yeah oh because he has like this vast array where i'm kind of focused where you know i know 90 percent of like the tokenami potters but there's some in there that you know will come in and i'm like hey i'll ask him to this day i'll say ryan do do you know do you know who made this one you know yeah um when it comes to the old stuff that's what i really love that's what i love to collect personally and that's what i like to to do like uh authenticate that kind of stuff yeah uh, i'm really passionate about that like and i just had this discussion the other sundays are the days that my tree guys come over and a couple of them have come to japan at the same time that i'm there and even though i'm with customers i go with two sets of customers i'm very busy the whole trip i'll, I'll carve out a few days where i spend some time with them and i'll bring these guys around with me and some other people too and I absolutely love it. I was telling, you know, the other guys, the five guys here, and I said, yeah, you know, Keith was able to walk into a place, and from 30 feet away, he's 20 feet away, he said, that's a really nice B-Gay pot. <laughs> I was so proud that nice. he didn't have to pick the pot up. He didn't have to pick the pot up and look at the signature. He could, he was, he's been around here so much, and he's handled so many pots here just, just on the weekends. That he was able to to see and recognize that the signature means very little. The signature, the true signature, is inside of the build and inside of the finish. That's the true signature of a potter. And so, when people buy antique, really nice old Japanese pots like Tofukuji and Kozen and Yusin and guys like that, you know, everyone wants to show you the artist's signature or the chop, right? Yeah, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Zoom, zoom back out on all this. This, these guys all used specific clay, and they mostly posted their pots in the kiln in a very specific way, and their glazes are very specific. That's the true signature. And so, when you're able to identify the true signature, which is in the build, then then you know you've started to kind of grasp that knowledge of. What Ryan knows is Ryan has like this photographic memory that, you know, he has thousands of, of chops inside of this database. And he can just, you can send him a picture. He just, boom, rattles it right off. Um, he also knows a ton about American pottery, pottery and a ton about European pottery. Um, and so his, his knowledge is really vast. And, and to be honest, I mean, I have to give a lot of credit to Ryan. If Ryan didn't start that blog at the time that I started buying lots and lots and lots of pots, I don't think I would have been as successful as I am today. 
Yeah. Because people wanted education. There was no education in Japanese pottery until Ryan came out with his blog. And then he provided the world with this extensive blog. And he'd find out cool stuff about these potters, like what they like to do in their free time. <laughs> you know, like, you know, what their favorite ramen was, you know, like <laughs> neat, neat things that he found out about them that, you know, made them more than just the potter artists that they, that they were or are, but also about them as an actual human being. And he's an excellent writer too. He's a super, super, you know, I went to a lot of grad school and taught a little bit of grad school when I was a teacher and at night and, you know, when it comes to writing, I'm not the best writer, but I had to, I had to edit a lot. And so I could recognize a really good writer and say, that person is much better than I am. And I looked at Ryan's writing and I was like, he's really good. Yeah. yeah. And shout, shout out to Michael Ryan Bell. I, I, yeah. I, it, it is so hard to find good information on bonsai pots and uh i love that he created this free resource his website is great his blog's great he had that chop database which i thought was really cool mm-hmm. and he's solid so absolutely shout out to michael ryan bell yeah absolutely absolutely awesome i mean i would like i said I would, my business would have never been and and anyone else who who sells things you know they just never would have had that that information i i refer back to his blog often when i'm doing different things just say okay well yeah wow let me go ahead and check this out yeah how the how the heck did he find out all this information like how does he learn all this stuff well because you gotta be just, a scrounger an information yeah. scrounger and, and when i'd find out stuff i'd share it with him but he found out you know the vast, vast, vast majority. But like, just to give you a little example, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, uh, a guest member of this bonsai club in Yokohama. It's like a, just a small bonsai club, maybe 40, 50 people. And I go there every year. They meet, uh, uh, on the fourth Sunday of every month. And there's like a bunch of just friends of mine and brokers that I know. And it's very down to earth. It's super not pretentious, you know? And, I remember sitting around having lunch with them, and one of the guys was describing a very famous potter, painter. He didn't make pots. He painted pots. And his name is Daisuke. And Daisuke pots became very popular during COVID in Taiwan. Pots, wow. that, I used to spend, pots that I used to spend three or $400 on were going for three or $4,000. Um, it was crazy because I owned hundreds of his pots and sold hundreds of his pots. And then all of a sudden there was this huge boom in Taiwan and people just went and he painted a lot of pots. And so I kind of had, and you know, it's, it's bad to, um, categorize people. Right. But I, you know, I kind of categorized this guy in my mind. Like he was, he was part of this club that I go to, you know, and, and he died like in, in the two thousands. So he, he was part of this club and I kind of thought he was, you know, just that, kind of atypical like a uh, very artistic looking guy you know mm-hmm. uh, i've met a lot of potters and they have you know they're very artistic people and you know they have a certain look or feel about them and i found out that he was like the polar opposite he was tall for japanese they said he was about you know i'm six foot two they said oh he's he, he you know he wasn't much taller than you or sh- shorter than you he uh was covered in tattoos 
which is very uncommon. Wow. Um, in Japan. He yeah. rode he, he he rode a motorcycle uh to the club, um, like meetings and cursed like a sailor, drank like a fish, smoked like <laughs> they were gonna run out of cigarettes. And so I had this image of someone who I thought it was. And then I sat down for lunch with these old guys and they were like, he, they kind of described him as like a, like a biker, you know? Badass. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. So you know, you, you learn information like that by, by going out there and asking questions and um, always being willing to, to hear things. And especially I think one universal thing when you're around People who are elderly, they like to tell stories. And and I just would sit around and eat little bento lunches with these old Japanese guys in this club in Yokohama, and they would just tell stories. And it was just cool to be part of that. Oh, that is so cool. That's that's so, so fun. Oh, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So would you tell me a little bit about your life as a bonsai potter in terms of like buying pots in Japan and, and how that works. And don't, don't give me any trade secrets or anything like that, but I'm just curious, like uh, because of the time differences and like auctions and how, how does that all work? Well, there's lots of ways that you can buy pots and, you know, you establish relationships and connections with people who get good pots. So that's one. Um, I think about like Yorozuen. Yorozuen is a very famous shohin nursery. It's been around for, I think the great-grandmother started it in the late 1800s, which is wild, you know? Wow. And they're huge purveyors of pots. Nice, expensive, expensive stuff. So I have a long relationship with them. You know, I spent millions of dollars on pots with them. So, you know, you you start off small, obviously, but you you start off by making connections and some people buy them online, which can get pretty sketchy, um, you know, from overseas. And, but otherwise I am able to be part of uh, a lot of auctions via zoom. So I have numerous brokers and then I have a main central broker. Everything gets sent to the main central broker outside of Tokyo and I spend anywhere from thirty to fifty thousand dollars a month on on pots of my own money. I just buy those pots, get them here, and so that's what I've done for a while now. So yeah, the auctions can start usually there in the mornings, which works out well. Like I have one coming up this Saturday. It'll start at nine p.m. Eastern time, and so then it's like whatever ten a.m. there or something. So really not bad, but the auctions take for a very long time. You can be in an auction for minimum two or three hours to four or five. And so that can go into the wee hours of the morning. And uh, I drink a lot. Of, I don't drink coffee, but I drink a lot of tea. And I just, uh, you know, even though I'm, I'm not with my, with my ex, we have a great amicable relationship. Even during marriage, she was, she was very cool about, and even now, She's very cool about, you know, like, I have a really important auction. I just would communicate that. Even post-marriage, I have a really important auction that I have to attend virtually. And it's very, very fast-paced, extremely fast-paced. And and so it's something that I have to really focus on for 
hours. Yeah. So buy a lot of pots that way. There's a lot of things that come across the screen. Um, super, super fast paced. You'd be blown away by how fast this stuff moves. Yeah. Is it all bonsai pots or are there trees and pots and you're kind of mostly just there's focused trees. on the pots? There's trees too. Okay. Oh, there's tons of stuff. So there's there's trees and there's pots. I don't I don't attend anything for the trees. So when totally. when my main broker goes, he just does the pots. So I never buy trees uh, or anything like that. There's also times where they sell stands and they sell uh, stones too, suiseki. And then there's times where they sell suibans and dobans. Nice. So and then there can be a theme. And uh, I've gotten into getting into more. Um, I. I, I respect Suiseki very much. I, I at one point a few years ago, I thought I need to kind of start to learn more about, you know, the the containers that hold them, the ceramic containers that hold them. So you know, I, I've learned some things about um, suibans and dobans. Nice. Yeah. Uh, with uh, so with the auctions. There are like uh, professional auctions in Japan where it's like professionals within an organization or something mm-hmm. like that. Is that how a lot of the auctions work within Japan? I remember I yeah. attended and, a couple and, um, when I was at IGN. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, I can, you know, I'm to the ones that I wanted to attend live and other ones that I attend virtually, you know, I've. I'm accepted in there. Um, you know, they have a very distinct way that someone becomes what's called a professional in Japan. Uh, and in America, we, we really don't yeah. have like a, like a blueprint. I mean, you have to understand coming from a guy like me who came from an educational background, when you're, when you're working in a school or university or something, uh, teaching, then you, you kind of are what your degrees are. You're able to do that capacity. And so there's very distinct lines drawn. And right now in America, what we have is we don't really have a clear thing about what constitutes a professional and what doesn't. Yeah. I'm moving into an outside topic. Sorry for that. (laughs) No, 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 no. My point is What's your thoughts there? (laughs) I I don't, I'm not a complete, I'll circle back to that, but I'll, let me finish that same. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. In Japan, in Japan, I'm not, I clearly didn't complete an apprenticeship, but a lot of the guys that I would go to these auctions, they recognized me as a professional amongst them in terms of buying. So it really comes down, a lot of it comes down to how long people have known you, how much money have you spent, and making sure you're good for everything. Because while there's a lot of cash and money that's exchanged, there's a lot of also, I'll pay you 30 grand next time I see you. Yeah. And that there's a lot of that that goes on, a lot of like lines of credit that go on. And it as a, as a foreigner, that takes so much effort to earn that. And it just takes time and it takes repetition of making sure that you always pay all your balances. So that was something that I was taught early. Um, Peter Warren was really good at teaching me different things like that, you know. And yeah. then, and and, it, and it's just common sense. But I mean, to but to teach me how it is in the Japanese world as a foreigner buying things, you know. 
Gotcha. You know, if, some, if someone has a $50,000 pot, most likely you don't have 50 grand in cash that you're going to hand over to them right there. But you'd like to purchase the pot because maybe you want it for yourself or maybe you have someone that's going to buy it. And so how's that all going to work? So there's communication that happens. Gotcha. Interesting. So, yeah. And so that takes, you know, that just takes time. That just takes repetition and a good reputation. And so you always make sure you keep your nose clean. You pay all your balances. Everybody gets paid. Everybody's happy. Solid. Solid. You know, I'm curious, since you've been in the industry now for 20-ish years, mm -hmm. what kind of changes and, and uh, like different types of things have you had have you seen over the last 20 years i guess particularly first off in terms of like with have you seen a big big shift in different countries getting involved in buying japanese and chinese antique chinese pots like uh, i hear yeah. a lot about china buying everything up these days is that what you see a lot more and is that more of a recent thing <laughs> Yeah, there's been a lot of shifts. I mean, certainly America has grown huge. I mean, I never thought that if you were to ask me 10 years ago that I would have been able to sell. Because that dollar amount I gave you earlier, most of that was in the last nine years since I've done it full time. It certainly wasn't while I was still teaching. You know, I mean, things were really small. That, you know, it was backyard. And that was both for seedlings and for pots. You know, things didn't really expand until I could like focus it here. So yeah, America has grown and continues to grow. There's always new people with peaked interests that like really nice old pots or, you know, things like just getting into pots that have some age on them, not necessarily expensive, but collectible and non-collectible. You know, Europe, I ship a lot to Europe. I ship a lot to Australia. Ah. Um, you know, oh, and all that has been very gradual and kind of synced together for the pots world. The real, the real rapid stuff would be like Taiwan came in and Taiwan really cleared out a lot of the really nice old pots that are inside of Japan. It's much, much, much more difficult. So, and they did it in a very short amount of time. And I had one Taiwanese customer and he contacted me whenever Daisuke Pots went through the roof. And I had like 52 Daisuke Pots in my store. And I sold them. He bought them all. And then he, wow. I went around to people who, who, bought, who bought those pots for me and said, you know, that pot you bought for $500 for me or $400 for me six years ago, yeah, yeah. I can get you like $2,500 or $3,500 for it. And they're like, what? <laughs> so I probably sold back well over a hundred thousand dollars worth of pots that i'd already sold so it made a lot of people happy because it put a whole bunch of collectors in america bonsai pot collectors that put a bunch of money in their pockets you know sweet uh, and they were happy about that uh he was a complete pain to work with to be totally honest it was very difficult difficult being that middleman it's something i'd never do again to be honest i just i, I it was, yeah it was actually a nightmare um, i could see but that. i remember telling <laughs> I remember telling him, I was like, these pots are getting so expensive so quickly. Dice Game made a lot of pots. And 
they really liked Geku pots. And Geku, Ito Geku, is still alive and still painting pots. And his pots went through the roof expensive. And I was like, he's just going to paint more pots. Yeah. And and the guy, like, kind of believed me, kind of didn't. And <laughs> they bought a few other painted. They got really obsessed with painted potters. Huh. Painted pots. Okay. Yeah. And so... You know, he had kind of told me, you know, after this boom, and then it kind of went to a bust. He was like, "Yeah, you were right." Uh, and recently, I heard from him, and he was like, "Hey, man, if you want to buy any of these pots back, like <laughs> we're we're selling them for less than what we bought them for." And I was like, yeah. I, "I told you this was going to happen. It was, it wasn't gradual. It was very abnormal. It was very quick. It was like almost trendy, you know, and it went it went, it went crazy." Um. So that's something that I noticed. China had been buying back their antique Chinese pots from Japan for a while. I'd say that started in the 90s, maybe late 90s and into the 2000s. Mr. Kobayashi used to have, he really specialized in antique Chinese pots and some really expensive ones. Um, I think there was there was one pot that was there that, that sold back. It was like over $700,000 US. I mean, these are Oof. really, really famous like masterpieces that go back and those old pots they're not even signed i mean it's like a lineage type thing you know it's this is like museum art and i think yeah. some of me even didn't go to individuals i think some of them went to like uh, government type of uh you know museum type things <sighs> so yeah so that's been a trend for a while but then they they bought back a lot but then there was they didn't buy back everything they really like um shoe day like red red clay pots when china started buying them back they love red clay so they cleared out a lot of the red clay so it's really hard to find red clay but there's plenty of brown and light brown and other antique pots and glazed antique pots that they really didn't you know grab a whole lot of interesting mm -hmm. you know i heard that in china I, i'm just curious if you've heard this as well or uh if that they they would buy antique pots that were fully patinaed out and they would clean them very heavily and they would like remove the patina to get them back to looking brand new. Have you heard anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of interesting stuff that happens. I mean, I love patina and even the Japanese, even the Japanese do something with antique Chinese pots that I've seen a lot is they'll, they'll clean the rim off, especially on a glazed pot. Huh. And, They'll even do like a partial cleaning on the outside, like to remove maybe 50% of the patina. And the reason is, is because, you know, these pots are getting up around 120 to 150, closer to 150 years old. And so when it comes to like um, quino or kikino, which is blue and yellow, um, or shirokochi, which is cream, or aokochi, which is green, then they get so much patina on them that they're, they're black in color. Yeah. I mean, you can't even see. It's not even a glazed pot anymore. And you so, can't even tell, tell the color almost, would you say? Yeah. So I've seen, personally, I've seen the Japanese be more tasteful in removing rim patina and then like maybe a 50% uh, removal around the pot where I've seen, I've seen Chinese like take all of it off, you oh. know, which is, yeah. they, you can then bring it back to, what looks like a shiny brand new pot. And I've seen those before. And it's like, literally that pot is 150 years old. And you can tell very clearly that it is. If you're, you know, if you know about the field 
and it was so heavily cleaned, it looks like it has a sparkle on it. Yuck. Yeah. Yeah. Yuck. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Me either. Me either. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and, Interesting. And I think that we need to, uh, you know, America's starting to appreciate patina more. Yeah. And I think people are starting to realize how long it takes to develop patina. I mean, I remember buying one of Koyo's pots over 20 years ago from him at his kiln. And he has a production line and then he had a signature line. And I remember buying one like 22 years ago or something I visited. And, and he said, you're the only foreigner that's ever spent $400 on this, on this little handmade pot that he did, you know, like the production ones he shipped, but the really, really expensive small ones, he goes, we just, I never get a request to have those go overseas. So I've used yeah. that pot for over two decades. Yeah. And it's amazing how little of patinas on it. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. You know, and so then it makes you kind of reflect when you get a pot loaded with patina. Yeah. But that's decades, man. That's decades and decades and decades of just soil and dirt, fertilizer, and the outside just slowly layering up. Got to respect. Got to respect age. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was interesting. Interesting. Seth was talking about last night. He was just saying that Mr. Tanaka above and I may be misquoting this slightly, so <laughs> uh, I'll have to re-listen to the podcast. But he was saying that one of probably the most important thing to Mr. Tanaka is is age, and it's one thing that you just can't duplicate with the snap of a finger. You you just need to let it go through the natural process and through time. He was talking about trees, but with bonsai pots as well. I think it's just so important. I absolutely love patina. I love <laughs> I like really dark patina on my pots as long as it's natural patina. I'm curious, mm -hmm. do you think that uh one thing I've heard is is oiling your pots can help speed up the process. What do you think about that? I don't think that so I oil pots when they come in and most of the time it's just, just kind of like, you know, do you wash your car before you sell it? Right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, of course. You know, Makes and so yeah. uh, I, 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 I oil them up um, every pot um, is what I spend so much time of my life oiling, you know, and <laughs> what the, it's just, it's, 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 you know, it's good for the pot and it's, it's making sure that a lot of pots come in dirty. And so you're kind of doing two things at one time. You're, you're making your pot look better and you're also kind of uh, cleaning it correctly. You know, you're not cleaning it in terms of what you think of, like cleaning the your floor, but you're cleaning it. You're you're cleaning some just outside debris off. You know, some dirt, some mud, um, and so yeah. I don't really know if I don't know if that really helps a lot in terms of aging. You know, getting more patina, but it certainly makes your pots look nicer and it lasts for a while. Definitely, yeah. And I know that. Who was it? I think Michael Hagedorn or Andrew Robson, they, they buried some pots to see if that did anything different. And I think that the results were very negative. I, I don't think it, it really helped. It seems like no. it's all about use, just using the pot. And it's that mm -hmm. maybe Akadama breakdown, fertilizer, organic fertilizer breakdown, just slowly sun. coating the pot, uh, sun, water. Yeah. 
Um, Wind, one thing yeah. I, I do wonder about is if, if it's something in the water, you know, in Japan that uh, helps speed up the process. And then, like, do you think that in Japan patina happens a little bit faster than in the U.S.? I don't think so. I think that um, I think that it's just they just got a lot more age on stuff than we do, and they have yeah. a lot more pots, and they have a lot more trees. I mean, you know that so many trees have left Japan to China in the last like five years. Tons of trees, a mass exodus of trees, um, from inexpensive to very expensive. Like I've I've seen these operations go on just. I've seen pallets and pallets and pallets of trees, and they're like, yeah, that's this week's shipment, you know? And it's like 700 yeah. trees. Or something. You're like, wow. Um, and so that goes out, like, all the time. And so I've, you know, seen about it, heard it. And, um, they have they have a lot of stuff. I mean, there's, you know, and so when when you go to Japan, if you go to Japan with someone who's been going there every year and maybe used to live there, they're like, man, it just isn't like it used to be. But everything's relative, right? Because if you if you take somebody to Kokofu for the first time, it's a mind blowing experience. I love when I run into people who it's you know if they're Americans that, or you know I you know anyone I can speak English with you know, and it's their first time in Japan. They just that their eyes are like saucers and they're amazed because that's the bar that they have. That's the new bar that they created, which is seeing what's there now and what's seeing what's there now still blows everything else away. Absolutely. Um, just by sheer age, just by sheer age, you know, and no matter what, if you're into big trees or small trees, I mean, it's, it's awesome to go to like Shohei nurseries and, you know, they're like trees and pots for 80 to a hundred years, just completely pot grown. And, <laughs> um, and I got to learn about judging, uh, the quality and price of like, cause I love Shohin too and I love Shohin maples. And so that's a tough thing here. Um, because we don't have a lot of really old Shohin trees in America, but there's a lot in Japan. And so, you know, understanding the, you know, take for example, like a Japanese maple, that's just like of any size, a lot of it's graded on how far that, 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 you know, when the bark changes from that, red or green color to a gray color and how far that extends not just up the trunk but out the branches and it's really cool when you see a very old maple japanese maple and it has very old bark all the way to the tips very old gray color um same thing with pines you can see pines with you know how the, the bark like say a black pine kind of naturally kind of has that rough texture and how far that extends out into the branches, you can definitely start to gauge both age and how much that tree is probably going to cost. Cause a lot of things aren't labeled. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Very, very important. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, we don't have a lot of that age extending into the branches. I also personally really like to see nice thick branches relative to the size of the trunk, like not all the way up, but that, first primary branch i like to see uh mm -hmm. a certain amount of thickness and age in that branch and i feel like it's just something we don't see all the, all that much in the u.s a lot of times we have really big thick trunks with tiny little branches with no age mm -hmm. to them you know yeah. uh, but japan has has such an advantage over us in that it's just a multi multi-generational 
bonsai culture that they have going on there. And we're just very much relatively babies or toddlers <laughs> over here. I think we will get there and we'll keep improving, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is just time and they, they have that time and experience. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think back about when I used to travel in my twenties and used to go talk about Trident Maples and people would go to a club and people would say like, well, I mean, Tridents are easy to grow. They're like weeds. And I said, well, that's, that's one of the big detriments to them is that, yeah. you know, very, very few people in America can grow a Trident Maple that has thinner, thinner branches at the top than they do at the bottom. You know, they get, get really coarse get and thick at the top. And it takes a lot of work to try to get that balance. It's, it's, it takes a ton of work. And, um, you know, I think one person who was, was doing that well for a very long time, and that was Suthan. Uh, Suthan just made amazing, amazing yeah. trees and ama- amazing maples. I mean, he, he understood the concept of, of balance. And unfortunately, it's not, you know, something I... I see as much as, you know, I'd like to see um, because they just grow so fast and they can get away from you so quickly. So on like one hand, we would complain about how slow ponderosa pines grow. But on the other hand, we would also say your tridents grow so fast that those apexes in the top can just years and years, decades of branch work can get out of control in a very short amount of time. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very impressed with Suthin. He's won so many national awards, uh, <laughs> too, and he he's good with everything. I mean, but definitely his tridents so are, are very very impressive. Yeah, so versatile. I I love Suthin for his work. I mean, it's amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, would you drop a little bit more knowledge on bonsai pots for me? I guess one yeah. thing that I was curious about is. Would you give kind of just a, a breakdown of, of just kind of maybe like the different, and I don't know how to ask this completely appropriately, but the different time periods that we see bonsai pots and kind of like their general respective values? Yeah, I mean, well, we have, you know, you can, when it comes to Japan, you know, you have uh, kind of just a lot of tokonami pots, you know, and, and those were made. You know, that area is really old. I mean, you were right by that area being in Ichien, you know, um, you're close. So, you know, that, that, that area has made ceramics for like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So there was definitely like a rise to start making bonsai pots um, whenever there was a big boom of bonsai in Japan. That's why there was so many of them. So tokonami pots is just a general term. When I was a kid in bonsai, you know, people would just call it a tokonami pot. They wouldn't know who made it, and it's like it's like pointing out like that's a car, but yeah. they had no idea. They had no idea who it was, and so now we can identify those. And most tokenami pots are going to be you know pots that people can afford and that people can use, and those were made. They were meant for use, and so you know they can just. It's broad. They can range. You know, they can range from inexpensive to you know you can get some really big old gyozans which cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, you know, because he's a uh, he's. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, is Gyozan the most expensive tokoname potter? Would you say that's currently around? Yeah, for sure. I would say yeah. so. I would say he's definitely. Uh, I mean, there's you know the, these these the kilns weren't getting replaced by like 
future generations. So there was kind of a boom era. And then now there's, you know, a lot of kilns that close down. I mean, I remember visiting Tokonami and I took some customers there um, before COVID and we went to Tokonami Raiho. So uh, a potter, a lot of people pronounce it in America, Riho, but it's Raiho. Raiho, okay. So Raiho is like in his maybe late seventies and he was super cool. I, you know, I told them we were coming and he came in on his day off and he was there with Okasan, his wife. And they were whipping up pots and he was here, grab my stamp, stamp this pot. It was cool. You know, I have some videos. I think I might've posted them years ago of, of him making pots. And right across the street was the Yamaki kiln, which has been closed for what, 13, 14 years now. And so I, uh, I can probably talk about it now because I don't think, any, you know, nothing happened. But I kind of, the door wasn't locked. And I kind of was like, wow, what's this about, you know? And I kind of edged my way in there. And and it was so crazy because I've sold, man, I mean, when it comes to pots, there's nothing more than I've sold than just a usable Yamaki pot. I mean, they were just so good. And they modeled their pots after antique Chinese pots but made them more usable in shape and size and i had heard a rumor once that there was a, there was a, a case glass case filled with beautiful old antique chinese pots that they were kind of like the model for their pots and i walked around there there was no lights everything was covered in dust i found that case no way priceless antiques. and i kind of walked around the kiln and went up on the second floor and it is in use, like they rent it out for like people who just want to make pots as a hobby. Huh. So that was pretty. That was pretty cool. So I mean, I, so I didn't break in anywhere. I don't want anyone. I don't want anyone listening. <laughs> like you know, the guy that sells all these pots like broke into the kiln. The door was open, and people still come in and out of there on a very limited basis. But you know, I kind of snooped and I found all their old original molds. I mean, there was just hundreds and hundreds of just molds that they made pots from and then finished them by hand. And then there was an office and I, and there was an office and it was like, I don't know what happened. I don't, I don't know what happened there, but hmm. it literally looked like when I went into this office that somebody was told you have to leave now, that there was a 10 year old <laughs> bottle of tea, you know, and a calendar wow. on the wall. That's and some paperwork on a desk, and it was just like wild. I was like, "Wow, something happened." I have no idea what. And huh. whoever was there just had to leave. And this kiln had been open for a very, very long time—decades um, and decades and decades. I mean, they—they were the only kiln I saw that actually had a semi-loading dock that there was a, a loading dock for semis to pull up to for them to load semis filled with Yamaki pots. So there's a whole range there because you, to go back to your question, sorry, I get off track, you know, the, no. <laughs> there, there's, 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 there's a, there's a whole range of what people pay for like tokenami pots. And then, you know, then there's the modern era of Chinese pots, which. So, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I just, I really want to know what happened to Yamaki. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, I don't know. You like you hooked me there, and uh, I need now we we got to figure this out. Okay, maybe we got to put Michael <laughs> put Michael Ryan Bell on the case. Yeah, he yeah, can, he'll figure yeah. it out. I mean, I 
I tried to inquire a little bit there, and they were just like, you know, in Japanese, it closed, you know? And so I, mean, I could tell like, it, it wasn't up for, maybe people didn't know, or it just wasn't up for discussion. But, you know, one day it just ended. I, I, I might have even taken some pictures I could send you privately of this. Like, it, it was really, it was really cool. It was very, very cool to walk around in there. And there was still pots on the shelf. Um, I think you could buy them. There was, you know, you just had to contact one of the Tokonami brokers huh. um, if you wanted to buy them. But there was, there was just a half inch of dust over everything. I mean, it was, it was dusty. It was very dim. I remember the back part of the kiln was made of wood and it, of, of the of the building, not the kiln of the building, and it was like dilapidated, like falling down. And uh, I was with guests. I was with customers, and they were they were kind of walking around and then all of a sudden I got the call, like we need to go. So I had to go. So interesting. Um, so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So, um, but thank, then there was, thank you. you know, yeah. sure, sure. My pleasure to share, you know, there, there was an era of like making, uh, you know, we got a lot of pots out of China, a lot of inexpensive, um, you know, cast pots and and so you know those are very inexpensive and they fall apart and they you know don't have a long shelf life but then now i've seen out of china some really really good modern chinese pots come out and a friend buy a few that were very good and so um then we kind of go into an older era of like collectible pots so instead of eras we can talk about usable pots which are more like tokonami pots and some other kilns and then there's also a totally different segment of collectible pots, of very famous potters um, that they made, that they wrote books on, and they have a very high collectible value. Um, you know, Tofukuji pots can range from the bottom of the barrel, five or $600 at the least, 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 like little Tofukuji pinch pot. He's the number one, The you know, like a little unglazed pinch pot to... I've spent north of $30,000 on a single Tofukuji pot and there's there is more expensive ones out there. There's a a lot of fakes out there too, right? Floating around you got to yeah. be very wary about buying his yeah. his pots. Yeah, for sure. The, the most important thing is is to understand who you're buying it from. And, you know, there are some people in the US who who know, you know, what good and what's fake. Um after a while, when you do it, it becomes very evident about what makes a real one and which one's a glaring fake. Gotcha. And when you when you understand, when you handle a lot of them, and you understand the way that he built pots and the way that he glazed pots, because it was very fascinating, his life story, the fakes to a person who knows is glaring, like you can spot them. And uh, a lot of people still, you know, I don't expect everyone to buy Tofukuji from me in America or anything, you know. I mean, people make their own decisions. You can buy from whoever you want. Um, but nice. I have seen people buy them to, I have seen Americans buy them and then say, hey, I bought this Tofukuji for $4,000. You know, what do you think? And I've seen right. blatant fakes. Yikes. And the first question I always have, well, first of all, I don't get involved because that's kind of a rule of business. It wasn't my business. It's not my business to get involved. Um, so I'm not going to talk to anybody for you or get in the middle of anything. For um, sure. The first I asked who they bought it 
you know, who did you buy it from? Did you buy it directly from Japan? Because there are people in Japan who, who will do that. Or did you buy it from an American or a Canadian or European or someone um, that, 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 you know, wanted to sell them? Yeah. And so that's my first question that I ask is, you know, where did you get it from? And then we yeah. kind of start to go, we start, we kind of start to go from there. And, uh, yeah, there's been some real awkward moments. Um, Yikes. the national shows coming up, I'll, every time I have, I have people at nationals come up and say, Hey, can I ask you a question? And I'm like, sure. And they say, you know, I bought this tough Kuchi pot and spent $3,500 or $5,000 on it. And, you know, do you think it's real? And I'm like, oh. I mean, sometimes it is, but see a lot of fakes. Yeah. Oh, mm. That's tough. That's tough. Um, mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that Tokofuji is kind of universally considered, at least maybe in Japan, as like the goat of <laughs> of uh, Japanese bonsai potters? Oh, absolutely. Because he's in... in and this isn't even up for discussion. Like, if we talked about sports, you and I might not disagree. Or you and I might disagree. You know, I grew up in Chicago. So I might say, you know, Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. And you might say someone totally different. And, 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 and we could argue that till you know, the end of time. And uh-huh. none of us are right, correct? Totally, but totally. One thing that's a fact is that, you know, in Japan, Kinbon, the publisher, the bonsai, the bonsai publisher, you know, they published a book, and and Tofukuji is the only person, the only Japanese potter, bonsai potter, that they wrote a single book only about him and his life. So there's no other there's no other person to say, well, I like this potter more, or what about this potter because. They didn't write books in those people. I mean, even mm. the other book they published, which was on Hyen Kosen and Yusin. So Yusin was a painter. Kosen was a, a very famous for glazed pots. That book is even split in half. Half the book is Kosen, half the book is Yusin. So those are like the top three. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, there are, though, a few strange anomalies, but most people don't even know the names of them. Like there's, if you find a bonsai pot by like Makuzu Kozan, um, Inu Ryosai, those are so rare. And they can be so expensive. They can be more expensive than some of those other guys. But this huh. because it just made so, they, they were, they were uh, you know, ceramists that made like vases and stuff. And yeah. then they were commissioned to make a few bonsai pots. Hmm. And it wasn't really their specialty, though. But they did a very good job of it. Gotcha, gotcha. So, like, like I know a Makuzu Kozan pot that's like sixty thousand dollars. It's a shoji <laughs> pot, you know, because there's just so few out there. Um, but those names aren't like commonly known names. And yeah. so, like, Tofukuji's number one. I mean, Tofukuji's number one. He's he's the only guy that they wrote this huge book to this whole this huge book about and i love that book awesome the goat (laughs) Mm -hmm. number one yeah awesome awesome so yeah you were 
you want to tell me a little bit, or if you wouldn't mind, about uh, antique Chinese? And also, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love old Chinese pots. I mean, you have the Nakawatari era. So like that, um, I think some people call it like middle crossing, you know? So you got like uh-huh. 120, 150 years old. And then you can get into the Kawatari. The Kawatari is real old and they're very pretty uncommon. I've had Kawatari pots and, uh, you know, they're very, very old. You can be, you know, north of 200 years. Um, and then, then you have more uh, early eras, you know, like uh, post-cultural revolution era. And those pots are going to be a lot less expensive. And then at some point, something happened where we had decades of just really poor quality Chinese pots. And I'm happy to see that there's some good quality coming out now. Nice. So people mostly, I'd say, though, out of that, they love the Nakawatari era. The Nakawatari era was a, was a great time. Great pots were coming out of China and uh, both glazed and unglazed. And so when you go to something like Kokufu or you, you go in people's gardens, um, famous famous gardens, a lot of the really big expensive trees are going to be in, not always, but there's plenty of them in like Nakawatari era pots. They say Mr. Kimura's garden. He, he, he never was into selling pots. So recently someone posted some pictures of his, kind of his famous pot room. And he has, he never sold out and he has been, you know, collecting these for like over 50 years. So he has terrific, terrific, uh, Nakawatari era and some Kawatari era pots. Very, Ooh. very good. Very nice. I'd like old. to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is there an era before Kawatari? And I'm probably, sorry, I butchered that. <laughs> no, 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 you're fine. I, I mean, I'm sure with my, you know, uh, I was born in Michigan, but then grew up on the south side of Chicago. So I have a strange accent that <laughs> I probably butcher a ton of stuff just based off of where I grew up. You know, um, I uh, I don't hear much about anything kind of past that. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then is it there's an era uh, after Nakawatari, right, where it was like they kind of consider it Japanese antique. And is that Shinto, or am I mixing something up there? Uh, so Shinto, I think, is going to be, that's pretty old, but then there's Taisho, Taisho Ta- era. Taisho, so, okay. Taisho, yeah, Taisho era, about 100 years old. So uh, really, we can't call things antique until they're over 100 or more years old. I think that's kind of the rule of thumb for antique dealers in general, uh, furniture or whatever you sell. And so... Before that, I would call pots vintage, you know, vintage, um, which can be open to a lot. But Taisho era pots, um, you, know, you can get them for a really good price. If you can find Taisho era pots, they're generally not very expensive. They're much cheaper than Nakawatari pots. They have tons and tons of patina on them. Um, a lot of them are cream glazed, so they collected the patina very nicely. Uh, and then there's some Shinto stuff out there, too, which is, you know, could be around the same era. I'm not exactly sure. But uh, yeah, you can you can get like a lot of old unglazed Shinto era pots. Nice, yeah, I love uh, the Taisho era pots. I feel like it's a really good bang for your buck if you still want a really old patina look. So it looks like Taisho era. I'm just googling this right now. From uh, July 1912 to December 1926, it looks like. Yeah. Great, some really nice pots for sure. 
Yeah, the the you can get, a lot of them were made pretty sloppy. I've owned tons of them. They they didn't seem to be made with a ton of care, but they're very durable. They can be kind of wonky, you know. Uh, have some firing cracks and crazing in them that goes through the glaze and into the clay. But when you have old pots, you need to forgive things, and so you kind of do the uh, trade off, right? Um, you know, certainly you could get something perfect and, and newer, or you can accept the faults, just like you can accept the faults of an old tree. You can accept the faults of an old pot, um, but it, but it, totally accept its its age and its history. Cool. With mm-hmm. uh, with those older pots, like say Nakotari era, era mm-hmm. I f- I feel like uh, often they have. Not not the kind of drainage holes that that are perfect for tying a tree down. Usually, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be one or two holes, as opposed to like nowadays, there's more holes in kind of better locations. Uh, is it uh, yeah. heavily frowned upon in Japan if people drill new holes into antique Chinese pots? Is that like a big no no? No, my, I mean most of them have drilled holes, and most of the time it was the Japanese that did it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and and that's fine. It's it doesn't. You should just when I sell things, then I always state that uh, it's very easy to be able to tell a drilled hole from the original holes because uh, a lot of times with um, and it happens even on like some tofukuchi pots and things, the uh, the drilled holes are really clean, whereas the the holes that were made from whoever made it, there'll be a little bit of a like a clay lip because they put like a dowel or something, some sort of device through there to, to cut that hole. Also, a lot of the really old antique Chinese pots weren't even bonsai pots. They were used for something else, and they drilled holes in them to make them use, the Japanese did, to make them usable as pots. Yeah, what, what weren't uh, the original... What do you call them? Uh, totally blank in here. Uh, Nanban weren't yeah those like like lids of jars or or like yeah. pots yeah. that you fed ducks out of or just you know kind of <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what I I've heard. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but yeah, the those those lids are pretty cool. Um, I used to have so many of them. <laughs> Excuse me, and they were fun to find, and they were fun to have around here. Um, they they've become more popular, and you know it's harder for me to get them, but they're really neat. So at some point, you know, Japanese people left Japan, went to China, and they were buying ceramics, old Chinese ceramics, and you know they they were the lids of like these huge ceramic vessels that held things like fish sauce and oil and uh, it, 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 something that would hold something liquid and something that would be uh, pretty non-perishable. Yeah. And gotcha. so they, at some point, I don't know who came up with the idea. I'd love to know is somebody went, Oh, why don't we just take those? Why don't we just buy the lids, flip them over, drill holes in them and put a tree in it. I mean, whoever came up with that, <laughs> I, wish, I wish they got credit for it. I wish they got credit for it. Very smart. Yeah. yeah. With those Nakawatari pots, I feel like, uh, or, or question I have for you is if there's a lot of depth and, uh, or width actually, are the pots a lot more valuable because mm-hmm. of the usability of them? I feel like there's a lot of very skinny, narrow 
uh, Nakawatari yeah. type pots? Is it a, a lot more valuable, generally speaking, if, if there's some extra width there so it's more usable? It's a great question. They're more valuable in the Western market. Interesting. Because, because we want things, we want pots to be big and deep and have height. I mean, look in Kokofu albums. Japanese, they shoehorn stuff into pots. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you see you, you see trees fit into pots that you would never see here, you know? So they've been yeah. they've been doing that for a really long time. And so uh there it doesn't matter um as much. Here it matters much more. So I keep I don't know, I might probably have I'm out of my in my shop now. I probably have close to a hundred Nakawatari pots here. And yeah, the ones that are that are deeper and taller sell much better than the ones that are shallower and more narrow. Gotcha. Yeah. I do think that uh, a decent amount of our native Yamadori, when it's collected in the mountains, often like if it's growing in a crack, so the, the narrower, longer antique pots seem to work for those types of things. And then also I was just going to say, I think we both have a mutual friend in John Kirby. Um, oh yeah, and I uh, I was gonna say that I think that is very true. Like most Americans want big, wide pots. I remember John Kirby like yeah. before. I can't remember what show it was, but just like shoving this massive, beautiful, great Nabari Japanese maple, or maybe it was a Trident maple, into these like tiny little pots just for the show. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he 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 was like my exception to that. Uh, I feel like most Americans do want uh, a, a more wide and deep container. <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, there's, speaking of pots and Americans' taste, there's there's kind of a controversial subject where uh, in Japan they measure the pot, and I measure pots when I sell them from the outside. Okay, the outside of a pot is because it's how it sits on a stand for display, right? Ah, yeah. That's very important. If if it's a thick-walled pot or it has a rim on it, it, yeah. it has to harmonize with the stand well, right? Definitely. And that is included in your, in your whole display. Here, we're very focused on internal dimensions, and that's a concept that's not as common in Japan. Because as you can see, they shoehorn things for the show. And if you go to a show like Kokofu or Gafuten or Sakafuten, you know, there's a different person who owns the tree usually than who owns the pot. The pots are rented for the show. And the pots do, the trees do not stay in those pots for the most part year round. So if you especially for Shohin shows, you can go there and see trees and Super expensive old Tofukuji and antique Chinese and Kosen and Yusin pots. I mean, pots that $25,000, plus dollars. They're only in that for that show, and that person rented it out for that show. They paid somebody a price, the owner of the pot, and then they put it. They put the tree inside of that pot. Yeah. Uh, very interesting point about measuring to the outsides, and I think it's really important for working out a, a proper proportional total display. Uh, have you ever, mm-hmm. just, just totally out of curiosity, have you ever thought about renting out pots and 
do you think we'll get to that that stage ever? <laughs> I think that's that that might be a mentality shift for Americans as well. Something quite different. I thought about it. It's always been in my mind. I think maybe I'm like I said, I'm 42. I think maybe when I'm a very old man towards the end of my life, I think it <laughs> could switch to that. Um, you know, if if you want to borrow one of my $35,000 pots that's six inches wide, you know, how much are you willing to pay, Jeremiah? Yeah. You know, like how much are you willing to pay me? Because I'm putting the liability of that pot on the line. And so, you know, if I know you and I say, you know, you can, you can, um, you can, you can use this, you know, how much does that cost? $500? <laughs> how many people, how many people would pay me $500 to have their showing tree in, in a, in a $35,000, $40,000 pot? I yeah. don't know that there's that many. Um, and yeah, usually I, people with nice trees, they'll just buy the pot, you know? Yeah. 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 I think, I think as big shows continue to grow and the level of competition continues to grow and people want to win and they want those awards, I think that is going to drive the rental market someday. Uh, but mm -hmm. I would not want, I would not want to borrow your very expensive pot just for the fact that I'd be really worried to, <laughs> to break it. Um, sure. Yeah. I would, I would make a professional take care of that <laughs> and uh, do they like they do in Japan where the professional sets it up. I want, I want that person yeah. to have the liability. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah, or, you know, that's, yeah, that's how it's done there. You know, I mean, it's not totally. Yeah. There's a, there's a middle person and that's the person who's the, considered the professional and they're the person who's you know putting all those things together and most of the time they don't own the pot and so you have two separate people you have a guy who owns a pot you have a guy who owns a tree he says we can marry this pot and tree together it's gonna look really good let's put it together and you know it costs this much and then the you know the professional takes a little little he takes his own little commission his own little fee you know yep and then it, that's how it works out. I, I don't know if I don't know if we're gonna get there, but we yeah, you know yeah. we could. We've grown so much in the time yeah. I've done this that you know who knows, um, you know what could happen. And um, I am glad to see America growing with shows and stuff. Like uh, recently, I didn't attend it. Uh, it was tough timing for me. But the there's that show on the West Coast. It was in California, right? Was it California? Yeah. Or was it or was it up north? Yeah, in California, the Pacific was, Bonsai Expo. Yeah, yeah, I saw the pictures online. It looked great. Yeah, yeah, good show, good show. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm very excited to to see that one continue. And uh, yeah, it was it was a great time. I, I kind of wonder what's going to happen with nationals. You know, with you know, I mean, Bill is such a pioneer. I've known yeah. Bill since I was a teenager, and I just adore Bill and absolutely his lifelong obsession with with bonsai and and all that he's done and and education. Um, and he's a friend too, a friend. And you know, when I see him and when I talk to him, it's, it's he's he's an awesome guy. You know, um, but I wonder about you know the future of that show. Um, how much longer, you know, he'll be able to do that show. I, of course we all hope for a very long time, but you know, no one, nothing lasts forever. And, and, and where it's going to go after that, because it is, it is crucial for, 
America to have something like that. I remember being in the very first one and how cool that was, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bill is... I mean, what he's done for American bonsai is just absolutely astonishing and and i don't know if you could you could make the argument that no one's done more for it you know and uh i think that the the national show will keep going on and on and on and uh i feel like he i i think i've heard that he has plans you know even for way down the road like he he already knows who's going to take it over yeah Uh, i've heard that too and I don't know, you know, I don't know the details there or anything like that, but I, I, I really like to think that we can have both a West Coast show and an East Coast show and we can build them both up and they can both be incredible things and they can both progress bonsai in the U.S. forward. I think that's what's going to happen. So I, I think it's great all around. I think that uh, we should support both shows as much as possible. Absolutely. Is the West Coast show, is that going to be every other year too, do you know? Yeah, I, I believe it is. Yes, every okay. other year. So it goes national and then Pacific Bonsai Expo and then back and forth and back and forth. Oh, so. cool. So then it alternates years so they coincide. That's nice. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, you know, the the more, and I understand too that we live in, such a huge country that you know yes. i can't imagine the logistics i originally when i used to show at nationals I was, stuff was coming from the midwest but there was always people out of chicago bringing trees so i was i was able to just you know my trees could hitch a ride and it worked out well um but certainly from the west coast it's so much further and there's so many more logistics that happen and traveling with people's priceless pots it's i mean trees yeah. and pots it's, uh it's quite a lot. So it's a yes. little easier now with me living on the East coast. Um, so, uh, I've yeah. enjoyed vending, vending there since I moved here. So yeah, like I said, that was nine years ago. And then I, I remember being here for only like, two, like a few weeks, like three weeks. I just, you know, quit my, gave up my tenure, uh, left the Midwest and moved here and this you know there was no greenhouses there was no nursery it was just a hill and some land in a in a barn uh an old barn and um i remember bill saying well why, why don't you um we we have like a cancellation in vending you know would you be interested in coming up i was only here for three weeks and so i remember renting a va- renting like a white panel van you know kind of those sketchy looking ones and i just <laughs> loaded it up i didn't have any anybody to help me i didn't have any staff i didn't have anything and and i just loaded i had pots though and and trees and so then i just loaded this van up and i drove straight there and i and i unpacked and i sold stuff all weekend long and then as things grow now it's much now it's much nicer now you know, I have people who drive everything up and drive everything back for me. I get to fly up and fly back, and uh, I have a lot of help. And help is help is much appreciated. Appreciated. Yeah, yeah. we all got to start somewhere, and I'm I'm glad to hear that everything has been successful for you. And I just appreciate your business so much, and I think that uh, you do great things for the bonsai community. And uh, yeah. Well, thanks. You know, I really appreciate that. And I, um, I've been asked to be on a lot of podcasts and I, um, I said, no, 
And when you asked me, I remember meeting you at Nationals. I think you were there with were you there with your wife too? Uh, the 2018 one, I, she came out. Yeah, and then I remember the, the I last know, one, like, you know, a lovely couple. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, my daughter. My daughter you was know, like beautiful. six months. Yeah, yeah, and so <laughs> it was nice to it was nice to meet you uh, finally in person. And so when you reached out to me, I, I just thought, you know, I really like what you're what you're doing here. You know, you 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 make great trees, and um, there's there's a lot to say about your modesty. Um, yeah, I, I've watched for over two decades America grow with bonsai, along with a lot of others. And there can be a lack of modesty and, uh, you have really good trees and you're very modest and I appreciate that. And, and, and I think about guys like you and a couple other uh, friends of mine who are people who have careers and they do bonsai because they love it and they just want to make great trees and they don't want to be called a certain title. They don't want, you know, they just want to make great trees. And I can, I can list a few of those people, you know, and, and I can think about them and that that's, that's what I really like, you know, like just people need to keep doing that. You know, people need to keep, to keep doing that and just to, to, to not over-focus on like creating this huge name and this huge platform and trying to, you know, rustle up a few extra dollars on the side, but to, to focus on, on bonsai because that's, that's what you got into it for, you know? Hell yeah, man. <laughs> Hell yeah. And thank you so much. That's yeah. very, very nice, especially coming from you and means a whole lot to me. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, I think that's kind of maybe a great way to wrap it up. Thank you so, so much for your time and coming on here. It means a, a ton yeah. to me. If I can ever help you out with anything, please let me know. Um, but it, it was truly an honor to have you on. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Likewise. And, uh, I hope that your podcast, um, does fantastic. I hope you get lots and lots of viewers and stuff. And well, can I ask you like, how's it, how's it going? Like how many people have you had on and what's viewership like and, and what's your kind of goal? Um, as we wrap this up, like what's your kind of oh, goal dang. in it? In, in this, you know, do you, you know, what are you thinking? Matt, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. You're not supposed to be interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, get, I, get one, I get one question to wrap yeah. it up, right? All right. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, so let's see. Okay. So I have, I think we are on a kind of episode nine, kind of episode 10, something around there. Um, okay. I've had a, a, a variety of different people, which has been really cool. I had like uh, Bob Scheiman, Julian Sai twice, um, Adam Toth. Uh, I had Eric Schrader and a bunch of other people. Shoot, I uh, <laughs> good guests, great guests so far. Um, viewership wise, I mean, not like an insane amount of people or anything like that, but. Uh, I've had a, a, a. I'm happy with with the listeners. <laughs> I guess more so, and you're putting me on the spot here. I feel kind of funny answering these questions, uh, but you my goals. <laughs> yeah, I can always edit it out. Um, 
goals. I mean, I, I just want to, I want to share bonsai information. I think that's really important. It's hard to find information about learning about bonsai pots, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think that there should be more information. Uh, a lot of it is just, my goal is just to satisfy my own curiosity. I genuinely am very, very passionate about bonsai, love bonsai. I just want to learn a lot. I want to meet different people. I'm not really, I, I'm not really in a club. I live on the central coast of California. Right. So there's not a, a big bonsai community here. Uh, so yeah. this is kind of like my club in, in a odd way. Cool. Uh, I get to, yeah, I get to talk with people about bonsai. I just like talking about bonsai, like learning, sharing information, growing, and having fun. It's like this is fun for me. So that's cool. my goals. Well, <laughs> yeah, I had fun chatting with you for a couple hours here, and I hope that you know whatever, whatever you know your podcast becomes is exactly what you want it to become. You know. And, and um, I can see that happening. So couldn't happen to a better guy. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it, man.